Welcome to Passionately His, a ministry of Dr. Jeff Loach and St. Paul's Church in Nobleton, Ontario, Canada. Coming up, we'll hear a message from God's Word. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast and check us out on YouTube at the link in the description where you'll find past services and messages that will inform your mind and form your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, here's this week's message. When I was a new Christian at 16 years of age, uh, though I had classes to prepare me for baptism and church membership, I knew enough to realize that I knew next to nothing about the Bible or about following Jesus. So I did what anybody would do in a situation like that. I started teaching Sunday school. (laughs) Because what these little grade four kids didn't know was just how much more they knew than I did. All I had to do was keep a week ahead of them in the curriculum, and I would be okay. But they knew way more than I did because they had grown up in the church, and it was part of their daily life. But if you want to learn about something, teaching it is a great way to find out. You just have to stay that one step ahead of your students. Five years before I even knew what a spiritual gift was, I was dipping my toe in the water and soon discovered that I had been given some ability by the Lord to teach. And through that experience with grade four students and then the next year with grade one students, I discovered that teaching and learning go hand in hand. But I was eminently unqualified to teach even little children, but the Holy Spirit empowered me and thereby qualified me to impart the faith to another generation. Have you ever taken a job for which you felt unqualified? Maybe you stretched the truth a little on your resume to get a job that was a bit ahead of your skill set. Or maybe you had a boss who believed in you and he promoted you to an area with which you were not very familiar When pastors get together, if we're honest with each other, we'll confess that on the whole, we have no idea what we're doing, really. We've been to seminary, we've been trained in various pastoral arts, but there's really no amount of training that can prepare you for today's church world. Thankfully, we don't do it alone. We have God's people with whom to work, and more importantly, we have the Holy Spirit. When Jesus appointed his apostles, he didn't choose them from among the members of the Jerusalem Golf and Country Club, right? Nor did he choose them from among the members of the ruling council, the Sanhedrin. No, he picked simple, unschooled, hardworking men, most of whom were fishermen. The exception would have been Matthew, the tax collector, but that probably involved more brawn than brain because, remember, he was... He was the collector. He wasn't the accountant. We don't know the occupation of all the disciples, but this we do know. Not one of them went to seminary. took a lot of faith on Jesus' part to ascend into heaven and to leave his ministry to these 12 bumpkins. But he had confidence he could do so because the next thing he did was he gave them the Holy Spirit. It was in the power of the Holy Spirit that Peter rose to address the curious crowd that gathered following the giving of the Holy Spirit, accompanied by many languages spoken by those on whom the Spirit rested. 
And it was in the power of the Holy Spirit that Peter and John were able to heal the man born lame, about which we read last week. We learned that it was not their godliness or power that brought about this miracle. It was the power of the name of Jesus at work through the Holy Spirit. And it is that same Holy Spirit whom Peter and John would need writ large when they had their next encounter, about which we'll read in Acts chapter 4. This is verses 1 to 22 of Acts chapter 4. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. Now, the the crowd that Peter had attracted when the lame man was healed captured the attention of the authorities. There were priests, most of whom were Sadducees. There was the captain of the temple guard, kind of like the local chief of police. And there were more Sadducees. Now, What's a Sadducee? Well, I'm glad you asked. There were two groups of religious mucky-mucks in uh, the Jews in that time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the biggest difference between them was their view of resurrection. The Pharisees believed that there was a resurrection from the dead in the last days, and the Sadducees did not. And that is why they were sad, you see. The last part was funny, but the rest of it was actually true. That was the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees had this belief that the last days were inaugurated with the Maccabean revolt in the second century BC. They were not expecting a Messiah or a resurrection. The Sadducees were especially interested in what followers of Jesus were doing because they were you know, purporting to follow the one who was risen from the dead. The Sadducees were particularly keen to quash the Jesus movement that was being carried on by the apostles, if for no other reason than to have less competition in the resurrection, no resurrection department. As we see in verse 2, these leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed it, so the number of men who believed now totaled about 5,000. Isn't that interesting? That the authorities were bent on stopping the message of Jesus, but even as they put Peter and John in jail, the church is still growing. It's up to 5,000 men now. Earlier we saw that it was 3,000 people. Now we've got 5,000 plus the women and the children. Just a few days difference. As John Stott once said, the Sadducees could arrest the apostles but they could not arrest the gospel. The next day, the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law, that's called the Sanhedrin, that's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the ones who are Sadducee, met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. Now, Annas was actually the ex-high priest because the Romans removed him from office, but the Jews still revered him, so they called him the high priest. 
even though Caiaphas was actually the one who was the high priest. He was Annas' son-in-law. And both of them had participated in Jesus' trial just weeks earlier. And we don't know anything for certain about John or Alexander or the other relatives. But verse 7 says, They brought in the two disciples and demanded, By what power or in whose name have you done this? Again, we learned last week, power and name are closely associated. And the Sanhedrin knew what their answer would be, but they wanted to hear Peter and John say it for themselves to build a stronger case against them. Verse 8 says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, again, being filled with the Holy Spirit is the main qualification here, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? A reasonable question, wouldn't you say? I mean, Jesus faced this all the time, right? Jesus would heal people on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees would come after them for doing work on the Sabbath, even though it was a good deed that healed somebody's life. Do you want to know how he was healed, Peter asked? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, that is, he was from Nazareth, the, the man you crucified, and it was Caiaphas who handed Jesus over to Pilate, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. That's from Psalm 118, verse 22. It was also a favorite text of the early church. Peter and John were solely reliant on the Holy Spirit to help them. They were like men with no lawyer standing before the Supreme Court. And then in verse 12, Peter makes a bold statement. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. I mean, Peter could have tried to be conciliar, right? He could have said, you know, you know the other gods, they're, they're, they're okay, but you know we think we've got one better. No, no. Peter's just laying it right on the line. He says, there is no other name by which we must be saved. Maybe Peter learned something about being more forthright after he heard the rooster crow three times when Jesus was put on trial. You want to be saved, he says. Only Jesus can do that for you. And that's still true today. If that wasn't going to annoy the Sanhedrin, then nothing else would. And to be saved in this context was also, it also meant to be healed because the two translations are of the same word. It's the same verb that was used of the lame man who was healed. He'd been healed, he'd been saved. For the lame man, his healing, his salvation led him to praise God. We say, when we say there's no other way to be saved, we're talking about a rebel whose status has changed. He went from being spiritually lame to being able to walk in the Lord, as well as physically. Verse 13, the members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness, or the courage, of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the Scriptures. They had no special training, and yet, Like Jesus, they spoke as those who had authority, even though they were, quote-unquote, ordinary men. Now, you know, I love word origins. Here's one for you. 
That word translated ordinary men, or could be translated laymen, people with no expertise in any field, the word that's used there in the original language of the New Testament Greek is the word idiotai. Now, you know what word we get from that. So next time you go to call somebody an idiot, just be aware that you may not be insulting them quite as much as you think. Let's carry on. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chambers and conferred among themselves. What should we do with these men, they asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed a miraculous sign and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. It would not be unreasonable of you to ask that if the council conferred among themselves... How did Luke know what it was to write it down? Well, there's a couple of possible scenarios. One of them, of course, is wiretap. No, wait, that didn't exist back then. But it is possible that Saul of Tarsus, a Pharisee who later became known as Paul the Apostle, was there. Or if not, certainly Gamaliel, a Pharisee who mentored Saul, was there. And he would have told Saul, who later became Paul, who then would have relayed that to Luke. Verse 18, So they called the apostles back in and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. So here we have an attempt to stifle the gospel by stifling the apostles. But as I mentioned earlier, they could arrest the apostles, but they could not arrest the gospel. But Peter and John replied, Do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling about everything we have seen and heard. The council then threatened them further, but they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. The Sanhedrin was in a pickle. If they punished Peter and John, the crowds would go against them because, after all, they'd healed a man who'd been lame his whole life. Punishing Peter and John for healing a man would be tantamount to saying that it was wrong that the man had been healed. And that wouldn't have endeared the Sanhedrin to the masses at all. So they just sent the apostles away with a stern warning. One that, based on Peter's response, meant nothing to them. They would obey God rather than the ruling council. This was the first sign of impending persecution that would befall the early church. And of all the things that you could wish to receive this Christmas Nobody in his right mind would ask for persecution. Most of us would never call persecution a gift. We would call it an injustice. But in the New Testament, persecution is not only a reality. It is an expected reality. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, the Apostle Paul, in writing to his young associate, lays it all out when he says, "...everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus..." will suffer 
persecution. Well, Merry Christmas to you, Jeff. Right? I, I hear you. No one has ever accused me of romanticizing Christmas. And to be fair, I've sort of adapted the next passage in our series to the season that surrounds us, but I get it. Nobody wants persecution. Nobody asks for it. Nobody likes persecution. But if we're true to our faith, at some point in our lives, we are going to face it. And as Western society grows more and more secular, persecution is going to be harder and harder to avoid. Remember some years ago when there were threats of removing the uh, possibility of getting a tax receipt for your gifts to the church. And at that time, there were some pundits who wondered if that would spell the end of Christianity in Canada. Well, it didn't, because here we are. But it would certainly prove who was committed to the gospel and who wasn't if you could give to God's work and not get a tax receipt for it. But in reality, irrespective of what any government might do with our charitable status, it could be persecution that thins the herd first. I dare say this is already happening. Peter and John heal a man in the power of the name of Jesus, and they get incarcerated for the night, questioned the next morning, and sent off with a warning not to talk about Jesus anymore. And the sad reality is that the majority of people in churches in Canada or anywhere in Western culture, when faced with that warning, would just give in and never speak about Jesus again. For a lot of people, that wouldn't be a big deal because there's a reasonable probability they hadn't been speaking about Jesus before either. Nothing much would change. H.G. Wells once said, The trouble with so many people is that the voice of their neighbors sounds louder in their ears than the voice of God. Contrast that with a tribute once given to the great Reformed a man of Scotland, John Knox, who said he feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. But in a time when it's not socially acceptable to believe in a biblical expression of Christianity and people are offended by everything, those of us who take our faith seriously enough to want to share it with others may one day face the real possibility uh, not only of persecution, but maybe of prosecution. We saw it happen in Alberta during the pandemic, though there were other extenuating circumstances to those cases. But even without the law on their side, many people will do their level best to persecute. As it stands, there are certain issues about which the Bible speaks very clearly, that when I speak about them, I may think twice about whether or not I broadcast them online, simply because the exposition and application of certain biblical passages could be construed as hate speech under current Canadian law. And what constitutes hate speech in this country teeters very close sometimes to causing a constriction of freedom of thought or expression. We already see this in public universities today where free expression is severely curtailed and it's spilling into culture. When Peter and John were proclaiming the gospel and healing people, it went against the norms of culture and that's not far from our current reality, is it? But what makes this difficult is that many of us can remember when Christian values were more normative but we rested on our laurels and didn't do anything when those values began to erode in society. And now we have multiple generations 
who see biblical Christianity more as a threat to society than as the foundation of society. If we're going to reverse this troubling trend, it's going to mean all followers of Jesus need to speak and share their faith publicly, whether professionally qualified or not. When the church became clergy-heavy and clergy-dominated, God's people decided to let the professionals do all the heavy lifting. And there were times when the professionals insisted on doing all the heavy lifting, and as a result, we ended up with a mute church. Unless the dude with his shirt turned around backwards did the talking. And that has put us in the pickle in which we find ourselves today. But it leaves us in an odd predicament, because if we don't talk about Jesus publicly, we won't be persecuted, and everything will be tickety-boo, so we think. But if we don't talk about Jesus publicly, we end up with a church that dies on the vine, and the world celebrates a Christless Christmas. We cannot fear persecution. And to get over that fear, we must hold our faith as dearly as we hold other values for which we would gladly face persecution. Just Stop and think about this for a second. What do you value enough in your life that you'd be prepared to go to jail for it? Would it be the freedom to raise your kids as you intend? Freedom to drive a gas-powered motor vehicle? Freedom to travel wherever you wish? Freedom to speak your heart language in the home or in public? freedom to vote, freedom to have the same rights as the opposite sex. I mean, there's a million different things that could be among those things that you value. But there are people, I mean, there are people who will go to jail to try and keep one particular tree from being cut down. And people won't stand up for Jesus who made the tree right? We live in a time where we put a lot of effort into avoiding suffering. Some call us the aspirin generation. And why, while we praise God for medicines that help us deal with a headache or a sore back, we think that one of our inalienable rights is to avoid suffering at all costs. But we have to be disabused of the notion that suffering is always bad because sometimes suffering is the way that God grows us. Let's use a plant as an illustration. If a plant had feelings, and for the record, I do not believe that plants have feelings, pruning it would hurt, wouldn't it? I mean, there's a big forsythia on the side of the manse, big forsythia, and it would weep through June every year because we prune it, but what it wouldn't realize is that that pain that it would go through at that time would in the next season result in many more bright yellow blooms. When we're pruned through suffering, God can use that to help us grow in faith. I've talked before about a difficult ministry I had that brought about growth in my own life, but did I enjoy it? No. 
Can I look back on it today with some gratitude? Yes. If we suffer persecution, we might never see the blessing of it in this life, however, and I, for that, use an illustration of the likes of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a pastor in the Confessing Church in Germany during World War II. He was part of an underground church that didn't go along with the Nazis. And when they finally caught up to him, they put him in a prison camp where he died just a couple of weeks before the end of the war. Now, did he experience blessing and growth through his persecution? Well, if you read his books, particularly letters and papers from prison, uh, you get a sense that there was some growth, but the greater part of his blessing was experienced after he met the Lord. And sometimes that's the way it works. We stand up for our principles now. We deal with the persecution now, but the blessings come in heaven. If you're not suffering at some level, are you really doing anything for Jesus? After all, hostility is aroused by things like evangelism, declaring the unique role of Jesus in salvation taking an ethical stand that goes against the culture, loving the unlovable. Get this and take it to heart. Being a follower of Jesus is not about being nice. Axe murderers can be nice when they need to be. Being a follower of Jesus is way more than a notch above nice. I've said it before. Be winsome. Don't be a jerk. But don't buy into the hogwash that to be polite, you cannot talk about your faith. If you believe, as Peter declared, that God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved, then declare it boldly. Because if you don't, is that really loving other people? I mean, if you believe, as the Bible teaches, that you have to be in relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in order to spend eternity in God's presence, wouldn't you want the people you love to be there with you? So let me encourage you to bear witness to your faith, to stand up for the, the right to do so. Stand up for the truth of Scripture, the power of the gospel, and do so with joy. When you give testimony of what Jesus has done for you, and when you share your faith by telling Jesus, to people what Jesus can do for them, no matter what the response, do so with joy because your reward in heaven will be great even if your reward on earth is not. Well, let's be honest. None of us wants persecution for Christmas. But in one sense, it's how you know you're living your faith fully. Just as burning muscles demonstrate an effective workout. i got to start doing some of this. Just as gums don't bleed as a sign that you're flossing your teeth. So persecution, at least at some level, demonstrates effective living for Jesus. Don't be afraid of it. You can be locked up, but the gospel cannot be locked up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the bold and brave witness of the apostles and for their declaration that not even the stern warning of the ruling council would keep them from sharing Jesus. 
Such boldness is what we seek, Lord, especially in this season of the year where there is still a measure of cultural openness to the good news of Jesus. We pray not that you will protect us from suffering, but that you will protect us in suffering. Give us grace to accept whatever comes our way as we resolve to bear witness to the name that is above every other name, the name of Jesus, as we stand up for him. Amen. If you've never suffered for your faith in any way, great or small, it's possible that you've never received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and I want to invite you to do that today. Turn from sin, resolve to let Jesus have his rightful place on the throne of your life, receive his promised forgiveness, and live for him today. If you'd like to talk about that, I'd love to hear from you. Use the connection card. It's in paulsnobleden.ca slash connect. Uh, Or if you're here, speak to me when the service is through, and I will follow up with you with some tools to help you grow. Or if you believe the gospel and are afraid to suffer, let me know about that too so that I can pray with and for you as we seek to stand up as authentic and faithful disciples of Jesus in our world today. Thanks for listening. Again, please subscribe, and if you have any questions or would like prayer, go to stpaulsnobleton.ca slash connect and fill in the connection card. I'll be glad to follow up with you. Blessings for your day.